It is April 12, 1927, and a bunch of mysterious men are trying to chisel their way to fortune in the shopping mall formerly known as the Galleria. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at orhistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. One of the things I wanted to talk about today was some famous heists around Portland, Oregon. Some good, true crime shit. And one of the things that caught my eye when I was researching for this broadcast was a time when a crime was a bit more refined, a bit more civilized, something that required an artisan's flair. Open sesame. I'm talking about safe cracking. In the early part of the last century, the teens, the twenties, banking, sales exchanges, and commerce in general was quite different without little plastic cards and ATMs. Cash was the name of the game. Therefore, almost all businesses in Oregon had a strong box of some sort, and most of these took the form of what we think of as a safe but it wasn't usually just filled with the business's cash, either. These safes also would likely contain important business papers, and maybe even valuables from the proprietor's home. Think of it. A tiny treasure hoard in each and every office, store, or industrial concern across the state of Oregon. In this city, there is possibly more wealth now than lay in olden times in the possession of a goodly nation. And were time reversed and Portland transported back to a walled town of medieval days, it would be an apt city for loot and conquest. Guarded by locks, bars, and metal vaults are many independent fortunes, practically immune from the attacks of the most accomplished of thieves. As modern invention has progressed, facilities for the protection of wealth have kept pace, until today, few possessors of riches fear their loss through the machination of thieves. Oh, really? 
As a commentator from our present era has written, Every safe must be accessible to a locksmith or other authority in the event of a malfunction or lockout. These weaknesses form the basis of safe cracking and provides the strength to the yeg. What, you may ask, is a yeg, dear ass-kicker? The term is thought to have originated in 1903 and commonly referred to a thief or a burglar, but most typically pointed to a safe-cracker. Now, the most effective tool an accomplished safe-cracker sought was simple and free. Time. Time to get the job done in a secure, calm, non-hurried environment. Time to be with the safe to ascertain its exact weaknesses to be exploited and to study the idiosyncrasies of that particular lockbox. But time was also perhaps the least available commodity in a thefty environment. So, technology came to the Yegg's aid. Drills, chisels, punches, crowbars and hammers, these implements of labor were all tools of the trade for the Yeg. Devices that allowed the Yeg access to the locked box. Some were crude and involved brute force. Others were a little more delicate and allowed the operator to demonstrate some skill and even grace. Elegance, perhaps, as we shall see. But the whole process, the entire occupation, started with a little sleuthing. A curious yeg would walk into a place of business first thing in the morning. He would make a very small purchase, a stick of gum, maybe a pencil, and pay with a $20 bill. And in the period of our examination, $20 was some big dough. Having just opened up for the day, the proprietor would usually have not set up his register and would naturally need to go to the safe to make proper change. Bingo! The observant Yeg would then be given a visual display of where the safe was, what type of manufacture, and perhaps even a clue as to the contents contained therein. He would then come back that night, gaining entrance into the business through a window or door, and get to work. In the 1920s, most yeggs could gain access to most ordinary safes in a surprisingly small amount of time. If undisturbed, most ordinary to relatively secure safes in this era could be cracked in 10 to 15 minutes. That's right, 10 to 15 minutes. The most direct method would be to drill into the safe bypassing the locking apparatus and manually manipulating the bolt mechanism. Relatively quiet, but needing a bit more than a modicum of skill from the operator. Sounds easy, eh, ass-kicker? So, what would happen if you couldn't crack the safe through mechanical machinations? If all your efforts to crack that kitty proved to be for naught? Why, of course, you'd blow the fucker up! Oi. 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 
Sometimes, explosives were deemed the appropriate method. In this case, the combination dial would be removed from the exterior of the unyielding steel plate, and a small amount of nitroglycerin, or grease, or soup in the Yeg parlance, would be poured into the spindle and allowed to seep into the lockbox for about 10 minutes or so. A fuse would be attached, along with a dynamite blasting cap, and the safe could then be opened with a box or a spindle shot. If this was deemed an ineffective method, a jam shot might be chosen. In this protocol, the nitroglycerin is allowed to seep through the hinges, and hopefully the safe door will be blown clean off. If the jam was too tight to allow the nitro to soak in, finely ground razor blades would be hammered into the jam, and then removed, creating a cramped but convenient crevice for the combustible liquid to find purchase. But not all of these incendiary experiments were efficacious. One post office job from the 19-teens near Portland found a frustrated cracksman pouring on more and more of the nitroglycerin after his attempted penetration. The resulting explosion tore the front plate off the door, drove it through a desk and underneath five tables, taking the legs off all of them in its progress. When the door was off the safe, there were still five more layers of steel between the thief and the wealth he was after. Cause I'm TNT, I'm dynamite. TNT, and I'll win the fight. TNT, I'm a power load. TNT, watch me And too much nitroglycerin? You'll burn tear, blow up, or otherwise destroy the valuable contents that you so desperately seek inside that sturdy steel box. If a professional yeg came into your place of business looking to get into your safe, the chances were good that he would do so. But so many of these crimes were committed by just simple punks, knocking the dial off the face of the safe and attempting to pry the door open, that safe manufacturers evolved their designs to prevent such street hoodlum tomfoolery. A more resistant safe would have several design features that not only were established to keep the content secure, but to foil some of the more common attempts to gain access to said secure contents. Oftentimes, safes would be constructed from a number of plates bolted and welded together, these could be a combination of a chrome steel plate with an alternating soft material sheet. The idea is that the Yegg's drill will penetrate the steel plate only to be entrapped in a vice-like grip of the softer material once the bit enters it. Other devices might be employed to keep the criminal from completing his charge. For example, one Yegg tried to crack a safe at the Pepsi-Cola Bottling Company on Northeast 27th in 1947, but he received a blast of tear gas right in the face from a tear gas bomb. There was craft in this appropriation. One account has a crew of investigators quite impressed with one score. A safe in the office of a large Portland business concern had been cracked. The combination had been drilled through, and the thief had worked right into the interior of the safe and forced the door without even a mar to the safe's paint. 
The experts observing the scene of the crime the next day called it the neatest job that they had ever seen in P-Town. The artisan obviously knew this, and he knew that his level of expertise could be an identifying trait, for after his loot was collected, he applied a small amount of explosive to the now empty safe and let it off in an attempt to camouflage his skill. As common as the safe blowing was, it was a pretty short-lived criminal enterprise. An article from March of 1945 details the Rialto Billiard Parlor's safe being blown to gain access to the $4,000 inside. The reporter noted that this was the first time in years that explosives had been used to breach a safe. And it seems there was some honor among the thieves, or perhaps a tinge of regret, even if it was to be found between the pages of some, well, sacred writings. As one of the best career boxmen was quoted as saying, When I would be laying out waiting to pull another trick, or letting the storm blow over after I'd cracked a box, I would spend many hours reading all these famous old English authors. And there were these birds that taught me, that a guy couldn't get away with my line of work for good. These old boys sure had the right dope, and after 22 years as a crook, I am just beginning to learn that it pays to go straight. Sadly, it seems, that when one Yegg straightened up, another was quick to take his place at the table. Consider the crew that pulled off perhaps one of the most famous safe crackings in all of Portland history. Olds, Wartman, and King was originally established in Portland in 1851 and in 1910 settled at 10th and Morrison, site of today's Western Culinary Institute and former home of the Mall of the Dead, the Galleria. On Sunday night, April 12, 1927, the lone night watchman, Fred Roker, was approached inside the closed, locked store by a tall, slim man at 9.15 p.m. He had a pistol. Roker was handcuffed and blindfolded, his keys and flashlight were taken, and the mysterious slim man let other accomplices in through the employee entrance of the department store. The thieves then spent a leisurely three hours to conduct their nefarious activities. The tall, slim man talked like a typical yeg. You see, Dad? I'll be darn glad to get out of this dump. I've been here since Saturday night. Now don't you get any ideas about pulling alarms. I got another bum with a rifle waiting outside, and he'll put the heat to any rank that might show their face. Got it, Dad? Security guard Roker felt the cold steel of the revolver's barrel pushing against his back and happily complied. Olds and King had a huge tile vault room. Yes, tile. The thieves carved a two and a half foot hole in the tile and crawled inside. Within the vault was the safe. 
Due to the four spent blasting caps found, authorities determined that the crooks shot the safe four times and deftly removed the steel six-layer door. They covered the safe with a mattress and blankets, so completely silencing the blasts that not even the captive night watchman had heard the reports. The thieves emptied the cash boxes inside and put the paper into a suitcase they stole from the store. About $20,000, and a suitcase, was pilfered, or about a quarter million in 2013 dollars. But curiously, on the floor of the vault, the thieves left almost $3,000 worth of silver and another $10,000 in checks. With a quick and loud, let's go gang, the hoodlums took their leave of Mr. Roker, using the freight elevator, and fled to a waiting car. At the time of our tale, it was the largest heist in Portland's history. Gone are the days of craftsmanship and skill. No longer does an artisan's flair accompany the crime. The yeg is passed into the annuals of Oregon's history to replace by stick-up jobs at plaid pantry and fucking tweakers stealing your mail. Be careful out there, ass-kickers. Thank you for listening, ass-kicker, and be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was brought to you by ORHistory.com. It was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kent Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Check out our website at orhistory.com. There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can sign up for our exciting Oregon history events, pick up Oregon history merchandise, get a list of songs featured in each podcast, receive extra insights into podcast topics, and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historians. Kick-Ass Oregon History is supported by listeners like you, and we are looking to do more soon we will ask your help with a big new project. In the meantime, share the podcast with your kick-ass friends and stay tuned for our big announcement. You can also support the podcast today. Go to orhistory.com and click Donate. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore History. You can also like us on Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. And as always, we'd like to thank our friends at Eastside Distilling, crafters of Burnside Bourbon, for their generous support. And coming up on May 21st, 2013, please join our resident historian Doug Kent Crispin at the Jack London Bar at 7.30 p.m. for Famous Oregon Heists. He'll talk about some spectacular thievery in the Beaver State's past, and yes, discuss some safe cracking while you enjoy some of the best drink specials in town. So come on down to the Jack London Bar on Tuesday, May 21st at 7.30 p.m. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kent Crispin. 
his use of nitroglycerin has gotten out of control. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass!